Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is May the 5th, 2016. This is episode 1780 of the Survival Podcast. And if you can't tell, I'm in a great mood. Because I've got big news for you in just a bit. I've got a, a project I've, I've kicked around and talked about that's been officially launched that you can be part of. As part of a beta test group that I'll be telling you about is our opening story today. In fact, I'll go ahead and tell you what that is right now. The Granddaddy's Gun Club is going to go live. In fact, it is already live. It is in, I would call it, pre-beta, though. I'll be telling you a little bit about what that is, how you can be part of it, especially if you know BuddyPress or WordPress and anything like that or you're a graphics guy. Uh, we have a, well, I'll just tell you more in a bit because we have a bunch of stuff today because it's a listener call show. So everything else is from listeners. We got a guy asking me, well, how do we cook duck without ruining it? And he's not talking about the ducks in your backyard, but wild duck, a little bit different. And I have shot a lot of ducks in my life and I've eaten a lot of ducks in my life and I have some advice for you, some really, uh, simple advice and then it's a little bit more complex on cooking ducks. What about, what about if you want ducks or chickens? Can you get them cheap? Right now you can. Lister calls him with a tip on how you might be able to do just that during what they call chick days. Um, I have a, a long-time listener, long-term caller named Jason from PA calls in with a question about Hillary and her speaking engagements with Goldman Sachs, and he hits on something. I think he's dead on, but I don't think it has much to do with Hillary and her speaking engagements. But, yeah, I'll tell you why I think those are done, but... Could a bunch of money be about to come back to America? It sure as heck might. And how would that work and why would it happen? I'll tell you when we get to that story. Uh, next up, guy calls in with a question. I'm not even sure if he's serious, but I'm going to give a quick answer to it. On keeping dangerous animals, and he means like tigers or cougars or something like that. Yeah, I'm not so fond of that, but I'll give you a few thoughts on it. Uh, next up... Lister calls in with a really poignant question about real-world preparedness and survival mindset. A uh, guy from Moore, Oklahoma, where it seems to be ground zero for not just tornadoes, but big, long-track tornadoes. I have a lot of sympathy for that because we have a lot of tornado action here. But that area of the country really gets it. He's got a pretty, pretty heartfelt question, and he wants me to talk about having a survival mindset for the things that really do affect you. And I think it's a good back-to-basics uh, topic that we'll be happy to cover today. I also have somebody asking me about using shipping containers, not for burying them in the ground or making a house out of them, but for storage when you have a remote property that fits in with our bug-out location show that we did this week. You know, you, you're going to go there at some point, but right now you're not there, but you want to store some stuff there. What are the ins and outs, the good, the bad, and the ugly of setting up a storage container, a real you know heavy-duty industrial one, and putting your stuff in there and locking it up. Uh, next up, listener calls in about a young man that called in last week, and he wanted to know whether he should take a job uh, out of college or he should go ahead and start his own business. And this guy had particularly had a master's in accounting, and I advised him he'd probably, probably want to consider taking a job first for a variety of reasons I won't rehash, but... Listener calls in with some follow-up, and it brings up a good point I really didn't think about. And uh, listener kind of tap dances right around it. I'm going to tell you what it is after we take his call. I also have a, a question on landlines. We, you know, in a day and age where everybody and their, their their kids and their wife and their uncle and their aunt and their grandma has a cell phone, is it worth the money to have a, a landline for redundancy's sake alone? For two is one and one is none when it comes to our comms. And the last question of the day, damn it, somebody wants to make me buy another gun. 
I didn't know that there was such a thing as a 357 Magnum pump rifle. They're actually a hell of a lot harder to find than the collar makes them sound, at least here in America. But I like this gun, and I like 357s in a rifle, and there's a reason for it. In fact, there's a bunch of them. I'll tell you all about that as we wrap up today's show, and then we'll close up the show with a song that fits right in with our special project we'll be leading off with. Before we get to that, though, let's uh, go ahead and take a look at the year that was the episode. A lot of gun action going on in this time, 1780. As you might imagine, the American Revolution is currently dominating the history segments from Alex Shrugged. Um, I have two for you today, Benedict Arnold's Betrayal. And the war goes south. I also have uh, some items of interest. The first circular saw is invented in 1780. It's used as a rip saw for cutting lumber. Uh, ripping means you're going long ways down, like board cutting. Um, before this time, lumber was cut using a saw pit. Uh, but one man was in the pit and the other man was on top. So you think about those, those old saws you see you know, in the old-time movies and stuff where it's two guys, one each got a handle, and they're cutting a tree back and forth, back and forth. Yeah, imagine one like that with blades for rip teeth cut long ways. You're down in a pit, there's a big log across it, and you, you're cutting it, and the sawdust is falling on your back the whole time. Well, after you get done with one cut, you got to switch. So, you know, you take your turn in the pit. If you want to actually see this... There's a YouTube series called Tales from the Green Valley. If you look that up, there's a scene in it where they go out and learn how to do that. It's not a job I would want. Uh, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences are founded in Massachusetts. Right in the middle of this war, the first people to join it are George Washington and Benjamin Franklin. And in a word, Derby. Horse racing at Epsom Downs is established by the 12th Earl of Derby. The race becomes known as the Derby. The English pronounce it Darby. So if you ever wondered why they call it a Derby, that's why, and it started this year. Let's take a deeper look at the war going south. A strange darkness has fallen over New England. Could it be Judgment Day? The British forces decide to pack it in, get back on their ships, and sail away to Charleston, South Carolina. General Sir Henry Clinton has moved 14,000 troops, and Washington must decide what to do about it. Luckily, French support ships arrive at Rhode Island. Washington is listening carefully to his French advisors, but he doesn't like what he's hearing. The war is going to have to move south. Why is this such a tough decision? Well, according to historian Joseph Ellis, the British troops are loading up to sail to South Carolina. Sixty Massachusetts militiamen have not been paid, and many haven't eaten in four days. Their shoes are falling apart, at least the half that still have shoes. General Washington has ordered the confiscation of grain and cattle. He says it's either plunder or starve. He is writing to Congress in very plain language for him. He tells them that he can't run a war with 13 separate war policies. Congress must find a way to impose a single policy and then fund it. He is making a case for a strong central government, but that won't come until much later. Soon Washington will lean on General Green to head south and see what he can do. This revolution is looking like a forlorn hope at this point. My take by Alex Shrugged, there actually was a day of unusual darkness that spread across New England, and yes, many people thought that Judgment Day was at hand, but scientists look back to those days, and there is evidence of an unusually large forest fire in Ontario, Canada at the time, more or less, along with the natural cloud cover that could explain it. Um, imagine everybody leaves, all the guys you've been fighting leave. Hey, we won. No, you didn't leave. They just went south, and they're reestablishing everything, and they're getting ready to come up from the south and take over lands, and your main army is without shoes, without food, cold, just made it through a winter where like 10, 15% of them died. Uh, your officers are, are committing mutiny. I mean, it was a tough, tough time. And the British did something here 
that's actually, in a way, won the war for America in the end. They ran away. They ran away. See, you have a weakened enemy and you run away and make them chase you. Well, as we'll see in the future history episodes, General Green and some other folks in the South of this war, they get really, really, really good at that tactic and wears out the enemy. Especially when you have an enemy that is in a position of strength. In this case, they ran away from an enemy in a position of weakness. Sometimes the smart military minds make pretty tactical errors. That's what I'm going to call this one, even though it seemed dark at the time. And as we move forward, I think you'll see why. That's all I'm going to say on today's history segment. With that, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, guys, why don't you show off your survival podcast pride by shopping at tspgear.com, where we have awesome tools like the Pocket Shot, Slingshot, and the TSP Edition of the Genesis Knife by MT Knives, along with shirts, patches, and more. Learn more at tspgear.com. Fortress Defense Consultants offers tactical training, including rifle, pistol, tactical shotguns, specialized classes for women, force-on-force engagement training, and you can even do customized training with them. They will also travel to your location for larger groups. Find out more at FortressDefense.com. All right, guys, so the lead story on the podcast today, um, I've kicked around the idea for quite a while of um, a site called Granddaddy's Gun Club. And uh, last fall, I thought, does anybody own granddaddysgun.com? It just seems like somebody would have to own that. So I looked it up, and nobody did. So I bought it. And then I thought to myself, do you spell granddaddy granddaddy or granddaddy with, you know, G-R-A-N-D-A-D-D-Y or G-R-A-N-D-D-D-D-Y? Well, in the Aaron Lewis song that kind of inspired my, my view of this thing, uh, there's the 2D. And, but I looked it up, and both are considered technically correct. Uh, one more of European origin. They say that more in like the UK. They'll say granddaddy versus granddaddy. Uh, so I bought them both and redirected one to the other. And we now have, if you go to either one of those domains, a website set up for the Granddaddy's Gun Club. And right now it's in pre-beta. But this is the concept of the gun club as a, as a total thing. It's a, it's a national movement. Uh, certainly, people outside the United States are free to do whatever they can with it based on their laws in their country. But it, it is designed to protect and preserve the right to keep and bear arms, which is stated in the Second Amendment of the United States Constitution. But I don't care whether it's in there or not as far as whether or not I believe the right exists. The right of self-defense and self-determination is an inalienable human right. And I think we should be grateful that our government is restricted by that Second Amendment from interfering with it, but we should see it as an innate human right, not just something that's given to you by the Second Amendment, rather that you have that's protected by the Second Amendment. And it is a Second Amendment-style movement, but it's much deeper than that. It is to pass along the tradition of gun ownership from one generation to the next, and it's absolutely open. Absolutely open to anybody. Since it's granddaddy's, it's not a men's only club. Granddaddy symbolizes the older generation taking care of the younger generation. Women are welcome to join. Anybody is welcome to join. But the concept is that there will be guns that will be set aside that have already come down from previous generations or are set aside to go to previous generations at some point. A son, a daughter, a grandson, etc. And a nephew, a niece. I mean, again, this is multi-generational. And those guns, you you know that one day that gun is going to go down to uh, a younger member of your family. And it's going to stay in the family, and you're going to 
you're going to teach that young person as they grow into an adult as a responsible American gun owner to do the same. And, and because we have guns, you know, in this country that are 200 years old and still work. And the guns they're building today and the guns they've been building for 100 years, there's no reason they can't be here 500 years from now as long as no one tries to take them from us. And I want to make damn sure that we have more and more people that feel this way. Yeah, from my cold, dead hands. You'll, this gun will leave my hands when I hand it to an heir or when you pry it away from me with my blood. That's what this is about. But I also thought, what a great way to do this would be if we created a really social club that, yes, can be empowered by online, but really its greatest power is offline. This came to me one night up in Elijah Spring Farm in West Virginia when I was talking to my good friend and business partner, Kevin Keegan, and we, we kind of came up with this together. And here's the idea. Individuals set up their own groups. You decide who's in your, who's in your chapter of the, the national club. There's no cost to join, by the way. Um, and the site is free, by the way. There's no cost to join the site either. We put some monetization things in there later, but right now it's just a service to America. So you join, you get other people to join, you set up your groups. And the site's already set up to where you can create groups, and each of your groups can have forums. Those groups can be public or completely private by invitation only. It's up to you. That's all done. It's, it's like artwork and stuff that needs to be done at the site right now. The functionality is there thanks to something called BuddyPress, and uh, it's, it's ready to go. And you can register for it and sign up for it and start using it right away. And then those groups will set times that they're going to do a shoot, an overnight camp out and shoot. And we'll come up with like formal guidelines for you know our suggested way to do this, but you basically run your own chapter. But the concept would basically be, since there's probably a campfire and beer and things like that, and guns and alcohol do not mix, one member of the club agrees to serve for that episode as a sergeant at arms. The sergeant at arms receives all the guns when you get there, and those guns are made safe the same way they are at a gun show, where you turn your gun and you're going to sell at a gun show into a police officer, and they make sure it's empty, they make sure it's clear, and they band it with a, a zip tie on the trigger or in some way where the gun cannot possibly be fired without removing that tie. That makes the gun safe before any of the social activities begin. We then set up a fire, tents, etc. You sit around the fire that night and tell stories about the guns, uh, stories about hunting, stories about fishing, stories about everything. Stories about you know your time in service. Whatever it is that's important to you and your members, you share those stories around the campfire and you include the guns in the conversation. It doesn't have to be 100% gun-centric. Everybody has a, a good time. Uh, fire dies down, everybody goes to sleep in their tents or RVs or whatever it is you're camping in. The next day, everybody gets up, has breakfast. Guns are taken to a place, you know, whether it's right out the back door or uh, down the road to a range where it's safe to shoot. And there's a group shoot. People are uh, able to let each other shoot. And uh, that's the basic event. And I think it'd be a hell of a fun time for a lot of people. And here's where it gets really interesting. The concept, though, is that someday those... Uh, Those weapons get turned down to the next generation. And the one big commitment, among some others, that a club member makes is that that, that, that handing off will be done um, at a event, at one of these uh, events. So that the child, hopefully, is coming to some of these things and knows that one day that gun will be theirs. And whenever you decide, or you know whoever it is decides that it's at the point where it's time, that gun will be given kind of ceremoniously at that point to that kid or that young adult or maybe even someone that's quite a bit older. I mean, 
I can see very well there might be people that would hold on to that that special gun until their seventies and decide now it's time. I want I don't want to die and then have my son inherit this. I want to put it in his hands myself. So that will take place, and you got to think about what this means. This means that if you had a gun that was your grandfather's, and uh, you gave that to your grandson, that moment right there, surrounded by your friends, people that you care about, six generations, six, just in that one time, do it again, it's nine. Guys, I'm fed up. I'm fed up with hearing about you don't need this kind of gun to shoot a deer. I'm fed up with all of it. I'm completely fed up, and this is what I'm doing about it. From my cold, dead hands. And this this is what I honestly think. I think if we can get enough people to do this, more people will feel that way. The Second Amendment is only as valid as our willingness to defend it. And that's what this is about. Honor, tradition, family, and an understanding that shall not does not mean anything other than shall not. There is no other legal contract in America today that any court would look at and go, well, we're not really sure what that means. Shall not is one of the most clear pieces of legal language that can be used in a contract, which is what the Constitution of the United States of America is. And shall not shall mean shall not. You have gone far enough, folks on the other side. You will go no further. And this club will stand as a way to make sure that we reinstill that value in America, we reinstill it in our children, and we reinstill it for generations upon generations yet to come. Because I want people to understand when people start talking about common sense gun control, what they're talking about is taking away your rights to your property. And if that property belonged to a grandfather or a great uncle or a father and was handed down from one generation to the next, I think there will be a lot more people that will feel like I do from my cold, dead hands. I invite you to join me as a new member of the Granddaddy's Gun Club. And I also, right now, like I said, it's pretty much a beta site. So I have a special hidden group on there right now uh, that I'll invite you to if you if you join the site and then email me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com and say, you know, tell me your username and say you want to be part of it. I'm looking for people who can do graphics. I'm looking for people to understand WordPress, that can that can understand BuddyPress, buddy that can almost make the site look good and give me some assistance in getting it off the ground um, a little bit higher than it already is. But uh, check it out, granddaddy'sgun.com and... Uh, I hope you become a member as soon as possible. How are you doing, Jack? This is Austin from Wisconsin. And my question is, how do you prepare wild duck? Background, I've been duck hunting now for a few years. It's one of the handful of game I hunt here in Wisconsin. But it's just one of the animals that I just can't seem to get right in the kitchen. Um, I hunt mostly mallards, both land and water. And considering your background in duck hunting, I'd Really like to hear what you have to say about that. <clears throat> Thanks, Jack. Love the show. So there's there's two things going on when we go from uh, cooking a duck that we would buy in a store or that we would raise on a farm um, to cooking a wild duck, and it, it's really two separate issues that we have problems with. 
And number one is age. Generally speaking, when you shoot a duck, if it's, if it's the youngest duck that it could be, it's about eight or nine months old, and it's been flying for well more than half of its life. So it's going to be tougher. And if it's, you know, a, a duck that made it through a single season, then you're looking at a year-and-a-half-old animal. And, and that animal's going to have tougher meat. It's also smaller. And then the last thing is it's probably going to have less fat because it's probably not as well fed as something on a farm. So the general way you, you raise ducks for meat on a farm, if you're farming ducks for meat, is that you are going to feed them very well, and you're going to raise them to about 12 weeks to 16 weeks. They're a domestic breed. They never fly. They never you know, really use those muscles that way. And that's going to result in a much more tender duck and, you know, the high quality regular feed they don't have to strive for. It's just given to them. Or even if they're pastured, you know, they're moved every day, um, they're going to be, you know, quite fat. And duck is actually pretty lean. People think that duck's fat because duck fat's so wonderful. But most duck fat exists in the skin. The meat itself is actually not very fat. So... We have an ability to take, uh, and so we take a, a domestic duck, a large breed like a jumbo peckin. The carcass weight is going to be somewhere between six and seven pounds. And we take a mallard. That's a bird that maybe weighs three pounds lucky if it's a really big one that's when it's wild. So by the time we're down to our carcass weight, we're down like a pound and a quarter, two pounds at the most um, for these small birds. So a small bird with tougher meat and less fat content. That can be tough. Here's a couple different ways to do it. One, if you have the patience and the time, pluck the duck. Do not skin it. If you do that, you're going to have that beautiful skin, you're going to have that fat there, and you can roast that duck. Okay. If you're going to do that, the other thing is don't overcook it. And, and really, with especially wild duck, you have this, you know, you have basically three pieces with significant amounts of meat on it. You have a leg, you have a thigh, and you have a breast. The, the wings are very minimal in what they have. So the best thing to do is to, to take aside, you know, four or six or eight leg quarters, the legs and the thighs, and confit them, okay? Get a little bit French. Uh, and you can do this with duck fat, and you're probably not going to have enough duck fat from all duck to do it. So you can buy duck fat. Uh, D'Artagnan's a great website where you can buy, you know, duck fat in a tub just like butter. Um, but you can also confit in something like peanut oil. There's, there's no reason where, this is where we're going to put a little salt and pepper on the duck. We're going to put it into a pan, an oven safe pan, a, a, like a ceramics best. We put that in there and we are going to cover it completely with oil. And we're going to cook it at about 200 degrees for several hours very, very slowly. And, 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 and I'll, I'll put a link to where you can learn more about how to do this in the, in the notes today for you. So that you can, cause I, with the show with this much in it, I can't go into exactly how to do confit, even though I've talked about it before. But that's what I would do. That's one option. The other option is, again, you have your breasts separately. You take your leg quarters, your back, your neck, everything. And you're going to take it and you're going to debone, de, 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 uh, take it, you're going to put it in the oven and you're going to roast it just for about, 30, 40 minutes till it browns, and then take it out and then debone it. Take all the meat off the bone and reserve it to the side. Put the bones back in and roast them for like another 30 minutes. Then take those bones and go into a stock pot and make a stock. 
cut up your duck meat that's been you know semi-roasted, incorporate that back in and make a duck soup. And I know duck soup is supposed to be something that's been messed up bad. That's a slang term, but it is not. It is a wonderful, wonderful thing. The, the stock that you get from duck is beautiful. Uh, and just some you know, carrots and celery and parsley in, in that. Uh, and, and then season it as you like. Salt, obviously, to add. Um, if you want a little bit more of a diverse flavor, adding a little bit of chicken stock to that helps. Um, or I like to use a product called Better Than Bullion Chicken Base, and they make an organic version of that. So that's a great thing to add to that to kind of diversify the flavor in it because, again, the, the wild duck has less fat. So that's what I would do with you know one of those things with the smaller pieces, except for one kind of little trick I'm going to give you here in a second. But what we got left at this point is the best piece of meat on the duck is the breast. So hopefully we've been willing to at least pluck the breast and, and deep breast and have two breast cutlets and hopefully more because they're pretty small off of a mallard. What we're going to do now is we're going to cut some little hash marks into the skin. So what I'm saying you're going to do is you're going to take your knife and just cut into the skin about three or four lines and then you're going to go on like making a cross hatch. Right, So you've got them like on an angle and straight and intersecting each other. That's going to allow some fat to render out of that skin. That's why we've saved it. And we're going to season it. I like to season mine with salt, uh, paprika, garlic, black pepper, a little bit of onion powder, and some uh, t dried, uh, dried crumbled thyme. Uh, and a little bit of, little bit of uh, rosemary. And usually I'll take all that stuff and put it into my spice grinder, which is nothing but a coffee maker, and pulse it a couple times so the rosemary's not real, real big. And probably a little less. You figure out your own ratios of that. I just kind of do this all by eye. We're going to get an oven, and we're going to heat that oven up to 400 degrees. And we're going to take a cast iron skillet on our stovetop. We're going to get our oil nice and hot, whatever we're cooking with. And I would try to use something like lard is great for this, bacon grease, coconut oil, something you can handle high heats without it being bad for you. Um, if you have to use a regular oil, use peanut oil. Peanut oil is probably the safest you know, vegetable-type oil you can use. Uh, and I do use it for quite a few things. Uh, and then you're going to go into that skillet that's been in, with that duck breast that's been seasoned on both sides, skin side down. When I do a, a full-size you know, domestic duck, I cook that for six minutes. I flip it over to the skin so it's skin side up. I cook it for one minute, and then I pop that in the, the oven for eight to ten minutes, and I take it out. It's going to be red in the middle. Yes, it is. If you cook duck all the way through, especially breast, you have ruined it, specifically breast. Like You can, you can cook the thigh and the leg through. It's, it's a, don't cook duck breast all the way through. Except for the trick I'm going to give you here in a minute, you can do it if you want to, and get it out. All right. Now, you'll if you look up how to cook duck breasts online, you'll see the complete explanation and tons of sites do it. Many of them will tell you to use olive oil. You got to cook that skin side down on high heat. When you get olive oil over 350 degrees, it breaks down, it turns bitter, and it's bad for you. Don't use olive oil when you're cooking at high temperatures. Just don't do it. Okay. Just trust me on this. So that's, that's how you make the breast. Now, if you just want to make the whole duck, you don't want to do any of the things I said today, then the magic thing is called a browning bag or an oven bag. And all you're going to do then is you're going to set your oven temperature to about, 400, about 350 degrees. And you take your duck and you season it. The mix I just gave you is great for it. So this could be skinned or plucked. And you're going to take your whole duck, just like you're doing a roasted chicken, 
but put it in a browning bag and cook it to the doneness that you like it. And you can cook it a lot longer that way. Uh, you can cook it for like a full hour for small ducks, um, and it'll cook and it'll tenderize. It'll baste in its own juices and it won't dry out. That's my last choice. But if I had to cook like you know, a half dozen of these things and had people coming over and I wanted to just give everybody a duck or everybody half a duck and I didn't want to jack around with it, I would rely on the on the browning bag or, or oven bag or what have you. Um, this I know because I didn't know anything about all the stuff I just said when I was a kid. And we would bring home, you know, ducks and my grandmother would cook them and my grandmother cooked the shit out of everything. She was old world Ukrainian. You didn't cook the shit out of meat, you were going to die. That is how she thought because, well, when she... Grew up as a little girl in the Ukraine. If you didn't cook the shit out of meat, you probably would die because it was no refrigeration and things like that. So they boiled stuff. They, ba I mean, they annihilated it. And the only way she could make uh, wild game that we would eat it was to put it one in browning bags. So she really overcooked it, and they were still pretty good. She did that to grouse and pheasant and everything else. So uh, try those methods, but. You know, my big suggestion is separate the duck, the, the, you know, the, the leg quarters from the breast. And this is for all duck, really. You can do a roast duck, but they're, they're such different cuts. They really do well to be made differently. And just look up confit. I'll find a confit recipe for you and a duck breast recipe for you, and I'll put those in the show notes. Uh, otherwise, let's take the next one. Hey, Jack. Just had a comment for all the listeners. It's the last, last days of chick days. Get out there. I just got... 20 khaki Campbells for $20. I'd offer them, I offered them a dollar a piece and they went sold. And I also got 20 Cornish rocks for a dollar a piece. So come on folks, get out there and get your chicks and get your ducks super cheap. Thanks man. Bye. Well, I guess there's not much to add to that. I, I will tell you that my local tractor supply that actually calls it chick days. That's exactly what the sign says. When you go in, uh, the birds are gone. So they may not be the case everywhere. And then there is a uh, feed store that I get my feed at called Russell Feeds, and those folks don't ever put their stuff on sale. I mean, they have they have birds almost year round, and I've never seen them really mark stuff down. I've never really tried to get them to do it either, but they seem to keep their inventory pretty pretty smartly to where they're they're you know I think a lot of times what they're doing is the birds you see available, the chickens and, and ducklings that are available, they buy a few extras and they have customers they already haven't sold before they order them. But it's certainly worth giving a shot. Thanks for the tip. This would be the time of year to do it. Now, I will tell you this about my local tractor supply. They get those chickens in. In about a week, a chicken can fly enough to get out of a stock tank. And it doesn't matter if chick days are almost over or not. They will sell those birds for a dollar a bird or less when they're waiting for their next shipment to come in and they got birds getting out. So that's another little tip to look to get your birds on a deal. Thanks for the call. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. Jason from PA here. Just having a conversation and thinking about uh, what could have Hillary been talking to, Goldman Sachs and all these other bankers. What is it the bankers want? And then it just dawned on me. If there's all this talk about the billions and billions of dollars companies like Apple's and Goldman Sachs and all these companies have offshore. What would they want? They want to be able to repatriate all that money back to the states with a reduced tax hit. And I bet you that's the big financial goal for this, you know, this next game on America, so to say. But, uh, I'm going to call this one, and we'll see if in the next eight years a law is done that's going to be a hand slap on the wrist for those bad companies 
that did this, but will let them repatriate all those billions of dollars back to the U.S. Okay, well, I think Jason is actually on to something, but he's maybe not making all of the connections here. Uh, and I'm going to preface what I'm about to say, that some of it's going to sound like Jack Spierko is pro-Donald Trump. I'm not pro anybody in this ass clown circus. I'm not. I, I, I believe that basically you have two thieves running for the highest office in the land in America today. And um, I have to say that if everybody that was running, there wasn't probably anybody that had a chance to win that I would have uh, supported anyway. But I am going to give you facts. And I'm going to point out that some of what I'm going to tell you may lend credence to the, the concept that What I said earlier uh, this week was that Donald Trump's, you know, multiple attacks by everybody from talk radio to mainstream media may actually be for the purpose of getting him elected. The more he's attacked, the better he looks. The whole damn thing could be a conspiracy, C-O-N-spiracy. Some of you know where that's from. Anyway, um, I'm going to start out with reading something from Donald Trump's website. This is a Donald Trump tax plan. This isn't pro-Trump. This is just what it says. No business of any size, from a Fortune 500 to a mom-and-pop shop to a freelancer living job-to-job will pay more than 15% of their business income in taxes. This lower rate makes corporate inversions unnecessary by making America's tax rate one of the best in the world. But cut and dry. If you own your own business, you will no longer pay personal income tax if you set up a S-Corp or an LLC and are taxed with your income as pass-through income. What that means is if you work for yourself, you set up Joe Blow's LLC, even as a freelance writer, and all that money is billed one corporation to another, your, or your LLC, your limited liability company, to another company, that's considered corporate income, even though it goes to personally to you. That Those types of structures pass through income. But if you're a giant mega corporation, a C-Corp, the public like Apple, you'll also only pay 15%. Okay, here's why this makes perfect sense to do. And it has to do with what Jason's talking about. And I'm wondering if it is the plan, and it might not matter who wins, it might happen anyway. And I don't think there's even going to be a slap on the wrist. If Apple, for instance, said, you know what, you're right, we have you know, $60 billion in China right now, and we should be patriotic and bring it back to America, and they brought it back to America, they would be hit for 40% of that money, as though it was all new income. And if they had kept it here, it would be taxed at 40%, and it's being taxed in China, I think, at like 20%. Okay? Now, here's the important, this is the thing that when they use class warfare, no one will tell you this. If Apple said, I'm bringing the money home, we're going to do it. It just makes sense. It sucks. We're going to take a hit, but it's for the greater good. Immediately, lawyers on behalf of Apple shareholders would sue Apple for, for, neglect of their fiscal responsibility because it would cost Apple shareholders, okay, and I think I said $60, million, $60 billion, I think they have sheltered in China. So you look at that and say 40% of that number, $25 billion, $25 billion gone like a fart in the wind lost to your grandma who has Apple in her mutual fund. And Apple would lose that lawsuit. Apple would be successfully sued and have to pay that amount of money again to the very shareholders that it lost the money from. And guess what would happen then? They would lose out even more. Apple and all these other companies that put their money overseas cannot bring the money back to America with a 40% uh, corporate tax rate. They can't do it. They'll get sued. And this goes back to this other thing. Money 
goes where it's treated well. The money didn't leave America because these companies hate you. They don't give a shit about you other than they want you to buy their stuff. They're neutral on whether or not they hate you. What they're trying to do is preserve their income and make money for their shareholders. And remember, Americans, that's you often. I own stock in many companies that pay dividends. I want them to protect my profits. I really, really do. Don't you? If you don't, you're stupid. Or you don't own any stocks because you haven't made any money and made any investments. All right? So that's just the facts before we go forward at all. Now, why do companies like Goldman Sachs give speaking fees of $600,000 to politicians like Hillary Clinton? And I'm sure they would Donald Trump, too, if he wasn't running the campaign the way he is. That's how I can legally bribe you. I can't just donate the money to your campaign. can't do it because there's you know campaign laws and stuff like that and what have you. And um, I, 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 they can do stuff through super PACs and all, but it's not a direct you know, money. And if I do put money in your campaign, it's in your war chest, use it for campaigning and all, but you can't like use it to, I don't know, go buy shit. So if we just say, hey, you know what, Hillary, come on out and you can speak to us and we'll give you $600,000, and no one gives a shit what she says... That it was a legal transaction. There was services rendered. Okay, so that's that's why they do it that way. But here's the connection I think Jason might be missing. It might be the case that it is the plan to drop the shit out of America's corporate tax rate, and not even say a slap on the wrist. Say for the next four months, four years, whatever, American corporations that have their capital overseas can repatriate that capital back to America under this new tax rate and pay nothing when they bring it back. They're only going to pay this capital gains tax, this corporate income tax, on money that they make money with. You just bring it back. Just bring it back. And that could be wonderful for America, or you know what else it could be? It could be a trap. They get them to bring the money back. And then they spring the trap and they start raising. Because what is the guarantee that you're not going to raise that corporate tax in the future. Or what if they did this? What if they let all the big giant megacorps bring their money back? Okay? And then the corporate tax rate gets risen, but all the companies that took advantage of this get like some kind of grandfathering or something like that. There's all different ways this could work out. But given that Trump's plan actually is is aimed at bringing overseas money back here, and given the only way you can do that without these companies being sued to oblivion is by lowering the corporate tax rate. I, I can't state this enough. I don't care what your politics are. If you're a realist, understand, if Apple brought their money from China to the United States today, they would be successfully sued by their shareholders for fiscal irresponsibility. Because the company has a fiscal duty to its shareholders to preserve and protect its wealth, and it would be a reckless move. Why would you, why would you give up $25 billion just to bring your money back to America? But Jason hit the most important part. These companies want their money in America. These companies that are putting their money overseas, they're not putting it there because they want it there. They're putting it there because America treats their money like shit. And when you treat money like shit, it goes away. We should have the lowest uh, tax. I mean, you know what I think. We should have no income taxes. I, I really do. But if we're going to play that game, America should strive to have one of the lowest corporate tax rates in the world. And let me tell you something else. You think, I feel the burn, people, okay? Let me tell you something here. Okay. But they should pay their fair share. They're not going to. 
They're not going to. If you have a 40% tax rate on corporations, they're not going to pay. They're going to come up with every single way they can to avoid it. You give corporations a simple, flat 15% corporate tax rate, they're going to do all their bookkeeping and make sure they only pay on the problem. They'll just do it because it's better than they're treated anywhere else. As long as you treat money like shit, money will leave. Do I have faith that either one of these people, Trump or Clinton, would do this for the good of the country? I don't think so. I really don't. Trump might. Trump might. See, it scares me. Even me. Even me, I'm being won over just a little bit because the guy seems like such an outsider. But I don't trust him. I don't trust him for a second. But he is a business person, and this makes business sense. This is a great thing to do. Now, the other thing you'd have to do is close all these loopholes. You look at what these corporations actually pay in taxes, you'd be, you'd be blown away by it. You wouldn't be able to, you couldn't get your head around how little they pay. Look at what General Electric pays in income taxes, even on their money that is in America. So there's all these loopholes and ways out, but then what these corporations do is any money that won't fit in those loopholes, they get it the hell out of here as quickly as they can, because if you had to pay 40% tax on your money, and you could move it somewhere else and pay 20% tax on it, not only would you do it, you'd be stupid if you didn't. And these companies that make all this money and all these great, wonderful, innovative products, they're not stupid. That's why they're successful. So I don't know where we're going to end up with this one, but it does seem that there may be this movement afoot to get money back to America. And just one last thought that I'll leave you with, folks. It could be because some of these companies that have a lot of money in China, they're worried about the future of that money in China, and they need to get it the hell out of there. And they may be paying, paying for it to come back, just like Jason's saying. Let's uh, let's take another one. Hey, Jack, how's it going? Listen, I live in California, and it is legal to have a uh, dangerous animal in California. I was just wondering, what animal would you have if you could have a, a cougar or a tiger or a leopard or a snake, something like that? Thanks a lot. Part of me wonders if this is even a real call. It's just kind of silly, honestly. It's the, what kind of dangerous animal? If you could have a cougar or a tiger or a lion or, I don't know, a fanged unicorn or a snake, what would you have? Okay, so my, my basic answer is this, is none. Um, I, I believe that animals like you're talking about, and we'll get to snakes at the end because there's a little bit of a difference there, um, but you know, big cats and things like that. These are wild animals, and I, I understand the conservation efforts of zoos and things like that and the educational purposes, and so those, those things make sense to me, but the private and individual ownership of these animals is a disaster, and it almost always inevitably results in being to the point where that animal has to go to some sort of uh, rescue facility that's, that's you know, like a nonprofit or something like that, that that takes these animals in because with a few exceptions, and we've all seen the movie with the two guys and the lion, uh, with very rare exceptions, these animals cannot be reintroduced into the wild. Getting a tiger from here to India to release it in the jungle, in a place where people, you know, in spite of all the plight of the tiger, a lot of people who live there are glad there's not so many of meeting people anymore, um, is difficult to do. So I don't think it's a responsible thing unless you, you know, if you can put in a professional, like, zoo-level uh, facility with professional trainers and handlers and vets and things like that to keep any of those animals at all. 
Um, I do get intrigued at the concept of something like a smaller animal that I've seen successfully kept as, you know, like a pet companion animal. I've seen some foxes that are pretty cool little dogs, basically. Uh, but it's like a dog that pees like a cat and stinks worse. I mean, that's the reality, though, with foxes. So that, that's one option that, you know, I might even consider. Uh, I've seen some coyotes that have been, uh, you know, taken as pups and raised, and they seem to do okay. Uh, but nowhere near is, they're not dogs. They're not like a domestic dog. They're, the, the, there's been research done with wolves, for instance, that even wolves raised from wolf pups, because they haven't gone through generations and generations and generations like the canines that are the domestic dog, Canis domesticus, and no matter whether you're looking at a little Pomeranian or a great big German shepherd or a mastiff, it's Canis domesticus, right, um, versus Canis lupus. So when we take little Canis lupuses like puppies and we treat them like puppies, and they're, they're you know, pretty tame, pretty calm, and, you know, people can handle them, and they kind of seem like they're acting like dogs. And you just observe the way if you take a domestic dog and a, and a human uses its hand in points, the dog's generally have a tendency to look to the human and say, oh, he's he's motioning, and they look where you're pointing, and wolves don't. So even like the, the, the canines, which seem to be a little bit or even a lot more uh, trainable than a cat uh, as far as keeping them calm, I, I really wouldn't advise any of that stuff. Snakes. There's two kinds of dangerous snakes, and, and both of them require expertise and rules. The first is, of course, venomous snakes. There are no poisonous snakes, venomous snakes. Snakes that can bite you and inject venom and either cause you serious harm or kill you. And to be blunt, um, there's no such thing as a venomous snake with training wheels. Like people say, well, what's the safest venomous snake to keep? If you have to ask that question, you probably shouldn't be keeping any of them. Uh, no one other than some, uh, like one or two cases in history with anaphylaxis has ever died uh, from a copperhead bite. More people have been killed by bees than copperheads. In fact, more people probably killed by bees this year uh, than by copperheads throughout history. Uh, they do a tremendous amount of damage, and it doesn't feel good. I've actually been bitten by a copperhead in my life, uh, and the back of my calf was what you'd call a legitimate bite. I actually stepped over a, a blown-down tree and just landed on his back, and he bit me. I'd have bit me, too. Um, didn't kill him, bore him no uh, ill will or anything like that, but... Uh, it's just a reality that, you know, that can happen. And it was very uncomfortable. It was a very big hospital bill. I didn't like it, but my life wasn't threatened. But it was dangerous, certainly. Um, there's other animals that you can definitely lose your life or lose limbs or parts of bodies to or be, you know, permanently injured by as far as snakes go. And my experience working with hot snakes or venomous snakes is, is pretty extensive, and I'm, I'm, I'm quite comfortable doing it. I personally will not keep them because you have to be procedural every time. You, the, the first time you get lackadaisical and think, well, I can just reach in there and flick that thing over for that, that, that dead mouse for that, that rattlesnake. He's not really paying attention. Uh, or I can get that water dish out without you know dealing with them with my hook or whatever. You get tagged. I, I've known people in the industry, and I know that's always how it happens. You do something you know you shouldn't do. Maybe they've done it 10, 15 times over five years and got away with it, but that one day you do it, and it happens, and you get tagged. And I'm not very good at being always procedural with like stuff that has to be done. It has to be... You know, weekly cleaning of the cage, weekly feeding, week, you know, every other day, you know, changing water out. So I won't do it. And that's, that's one type of dangerous snake. The other type of dangerous snake and the one that gets underrated and probably causes more harm are large snakes. 
Uh, people and people that let their kids get like reticulated pythons and stuff like that need their head smacked because that kid's gonna grow up and go to college or leave, and you're gonna be stuck with a freaking you know several hundred pound animal that's dangerous, and nobody's gonna want it. Um, but the rule that I have, if a snake is, and this is a girthy snake, uh, a snake that's you know got some weight to it. So I had a Taiwanese rat snake that was 11 feet long, but it was about big around as my wrist. I'd handle that snake alone all day long. But let's say female boas and larger pythons, etc., if they're over eight feet, I will not handle the snake alone. I could do it, and if I absolutely had to for some specific reason, I would. But if that animal starts wrapping up around your neck or you can even just, without being seriously injured, you know, I've had smaller boas, like I had a Dermills boa, about a six-foot Demille's boa that got my, my thumb kind of pulled up against my wrist and damn near broke my finger, and he wasn't being aggressive or even constricting, really. He was just making himself comfortable. They're very, very strong animals, and I was able to get him to release, but had that animal decided at that moment to go into a feeding response for some confusion purpose and actually constricted that, he would have at least dislocated my thumb at the lower joint, and it would have been difficult to get him off. But at a, a six-foot snake, I'd have been able to do it. If you have a snake do that on your neck or your chest, and you're talking about a 10-foot snake that weighs a couple hundred pounds, no matter how experienced you are, you have a risk of being either seriously injured or killed. So larger snakes, the rule has to be you don't handle them alone. And that means when you're thinking, well, I'll let my kid get this boa constrictor or some shit like that, well, are you going to handle it with them when the damn thing's 10-foot long, 8-foot long? You know, bigger common boas get 8, 9 feet. And for male boas, usually are a thinner girth, and they're, I'm more comfortable with them. But, I mean, just all in all, a lot of this stuff is a really stupid idea. Um, if you have to ask questions like that, don't do it. And the, the concept to me of keeping a big cat is kind of dumb. Go out and find a wild, you know, feral, domesticated cat and piss it off and then think, okay, that animal weighs 10 pounds. What can an animal that weighs 150 pounds like a, a mountain lion do? Um, it's just not a good idea. I don't know if the question was serious or not, but I figured I'd go ahead and answer it. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Cody from Oklahoma City, and I was wondering if you can comment on the basic fundamental mindset of Peregrine. And let me give you a little bit of background. My wife and I live in Oklahoma City. One thing that is very prevalent here are tornadoes. We, especially right now, it's storm season, and this is something that is a very real thing. And I live in a, a suburb of Oklahoma City called Moore, and for some reason Moore is especially uh, susceptible to very large tornadoes. It's a very real thing for my wife and I. Every time storm season comes around, she gets very nervous. Very, um, she doesn't want to be in another F5-type scenario that we had in 2013. And, and we had a severe weather watch last week, and she looks over towards me, and she says, Babe, I want to have a plan. And I don't know that I've ever been more proud of her in that moment. And she's not a survivalist. She hates the outdoors. But I think she's starting to slowly build a foundation for the proper mindset that most preppers or survivalists, I think, get away from because she wants to be ready for the things that especially affect us. I don't know. I think the email that you read in the feedback show about the gentleman in Alberta getting away from the wildfires, I kinda, it kind of hit home about the stuff that we have to kind of prepare for here. 
of, of tornadoes and the things like that. Hammers home that we're not preparing for necessarily for an EMP or whatever the case may be. I mean, we kind of bring it back home, back down to the sort of the basics. I guess I would describe it. I don't know how you would, but I was wondering if you could just comment on that. So yeah, um, this is a a very heartfelt, you know, real world call, and and I understand personally quite well. Being from the Dallas Fort Worth area, tornadoes are a very real threat to us here as well. It's our primary threat. Um, to our safety. We have other threats that I think could make us uncomfortable, that could cause us to maybe, maybe even have to evacuate. But when it comes to something that could actually end our lives or seriously injure us, um, that you don't really have any control over. Like that could happen in a car, but there's things you can do about it. Where you know you can get a large enough tornado, and, and unless you have a purpose-built um, safety shelter, There, there's not much you can do about it. And, and you might get a day's warning that a storm's coming that could cause tornadoes, but when they actually spin up and happen, it's a very short window of time to do something about it if you happen to be where, where the danger is. So it, it's real to me, too. And as bad as, and we get a lot of tornadoes in the North Texas area, a lot. But the more area of Oklahoma, the caller is right. They get specifically not just a lot of tornadoes, but large tornadoes, high intense tornadoes. So it's, it's not just wide and very large swaths of destruction, but also very intense, high, you know, F4, F5s type tornadoes. And they get also what you call long track tornadoes. So a lot of times you have tornadoes, they spin up, they, they, they do some damage and they go back up and they might come back down here and there. And I've seen places around here where you see tornadoes have literally like skipped like, like a rock on a lake. And you see four or five houses pretty badly damaged, one with a little bit off the roof, three untouched, another one with the roof off, another one almost to the ground, and then it's gone. Where, you know, it seems like in that Kansas, Oklahoma, Nebraska area, uh, you get a lot more of these tornadoes that get on the ground and stay on the ground. Like the ones that hit... Uh, in the outbreak of 2011, I believe it was, with Birmingham, Alabama, where that tornado was on the ground for, I think, seven miles and three-quarters of a mile wide. And I actually saw the aftermath of that tornado. We drove through Birmingham, and there was a traffic jam right where it crossed the state highway. And I pulled the truck over, and Dorothy and I got out of it, and we just looked in both directions as far as we could see, and it looked like a nuclear bomb went off. Except that it was like a nuclear bomb that was three quarters of a mile wide and it's and, and, and went out like vertically. It was you look at it and went, first of all, I don't know how any of those people survived. And second of all, if that was my home, it, it's not like you just start picking stuff up. You just sit there and go, What what do you do? I mean you gotta bring equipment in and start using excavators and dump trucks and take stuff away. So it's real. And it's exactly the kind of thing we should be preparing for. But I don't want to go in and well, how do you prepare for a tornado? But how does this apply to you if you, you're going, well, I live where there, that's not my primary threat. My, my primary threat's an ice storm, or my primary threat is uh, tropical storms and hurricanes and what have you, uh, flooding, whatever it is. Well, it's called a threat assessment. And, it's, and the caller's right. People get into prepping, and I'm worried about the United Nations taking over America. Okay, well, you know. Um, there's a lot of other shit to worry about other than that. Um, or I'm worried about the dollar collapsing. I'm worried about an economic collapse. Well, you're sitting in the middle of one right now, so this is what they look like in many ways. I'm not saying they can't get worse, but, I mean, seriously. Um, 
what you need to be thinking of is what are the things that are a direct threat to my safety that are actually the most likely things to occur. And that's based on a threat assessment, so those are the things. But here's the general way to think about it, and I've been teaching this now for eight years, and it's really pretty simple. The smaller the number of people affected by a disaster, the more likely it is to happen to you. And what I mean by that is if, if you're a, a two-income family, and uh, dad falls off a of scaffolding, breaks his back, and can't work anymore. That's a freaking disaster. If uh, if one of the one of the two of you comes home, puts their hands in your face, says, "Honey, I got to tell you, one of the doctor today, I got cancer. There's nothing they can do about it." That's a disaster. And if uh, one of you's on the way to work and get hit by a gravel truck and are killed, that's a disaster. And those things happen every day to somebody. And those are the things that are most likely to happen to you. The next thing is the neighborhood-level small regional disaster, and that's exactly what a tornado is. And it happens to, to, to thousands of people every year. And it's just the truth. And as we, as we go out in the scope of disaster to what you'd call higher impact scale, yes, if a freaking meteor wipes out the planet, that's a much bigger impact, figuratively and literally, but the odds are much smaller. And all of our preparedness should start at the things that can actually happen to us, both catastrophic and just highly inconvenient. And what's the difference? Uh, catastrophic is a cancer diagnosis, especially one that's not very treatable. Catastrophic is a person injured in an auto accident that will never move from their neck down again for the rest of their life. Those are catastrophic. Um, major inconvenience is a cancer diagnosis that's highly treatable, but it's going to derail your whole life. Uh, major inconvenience, nowhere near as bad, but major inconvenience is an ice storm that knocks out your power not for a day, but a week or two. And these are real-world things. And here's the key. If you can get into this mindset, if you can shelve all the super disasters for, for just long enough to actually put your shit in order, everything that you do to prepare for these disasters is actually getting you prepared for larger ones. Because we don't prepare for events. You know those doomsday prepper shows? What are you preparing for? I'm preparing for a coronal mass ejection of the sun. Whatever stupid thing. By the way, do you know why those people say that on that show? Because the producers tell them what they're preparing for. I know people that have been on that show, personal friends, that went on that show, against my advice, by the way, because I'm like, they're going to make you look crazy, and you're not. Some are not crazy. They just make them look that way because it's for your entertainment, and they don't care who they abuse for it. By the way, I met the producer of that show. He told me to, his, to my face he doesn't have an integrity because he can't afford to. And then asked me if I'd work with him. <laughs> I said, yeah, I don't think so, <laughs> you idiot. Anyway, so what you actually prepare for is to deal without systems of support. And to stay alive long enough, either during the catastrophe or in the aftermath, to be able to put things back together. That's the basic mindset. And that's why we need to focus on, you know, if there is a tornado and it does blow our house down on top of us and kill us, okay, our problems are over. But assuming we just have damage to the home, we're going to need to get help. We're going to need to be able to communicate. We're going to need to be able to see what's going on. If we go into um, a basement, for instance or some sort of underground shelter, we need to make sure that we have like a hammer, not just flashlights, but a hammer. Why? What if we're pinned under there and people are trying to find us and rescue us? We need to be able to beat on that thing so that people can hear where we're at. Because if you sit there going, help, help, long enough, your voice wears out. You know, means of communications and things like that. And We need to think about, well, if something goes wrong, 
either with our jobs or our ability to work because of disease, illness, or injury, then money is going to be important. So we need to think about good financial management. Uh, food storage is not just in case the whole do you know the dollar collapses in or the a zombies march or whatever. If we lose a job and we have 90 days of food stored up, then we can live on that food until we get a new job. And that extends our financial preparedness, and it makes things like unemployment compensation, if we qualify for that in that situation, work longer and better for us. It makes us less likely to really go in and start tapping into something like our long-term savings. This is, this is basic preparedness. This is modern survivalism. This is my 12 tenets that I've been teaching since 2008. Um, and I've recorded this segment for YouTube. I recommend this is a great one for you guys to share that have family and friends that are like, you know, I'm not into all this survivalism. This is real. This happens to people all the time. And I'll, I'll finish up with this thought. Uh, a few months ago, or actually about a month ago, here in Dallas we had a major hailstorm. I'm talking hailstones that were like baseball sizing up, damaged cars left and right. Then we had another set of storms come through a couple weeks later. People were putting mattresses on their cars, hiding them under overpasses, freaking out because they had just seen it. It was real to them. But you know what? Next round of storms came through. Since it didn't happen again, everybody's back to the normal way of life. Stay alert, stay aware, stay prepared. That's just the way to be smart, folks. It really is. And that's what modern survivalism is really all about. A great call. Thank you for it. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Dennis here from lovely Jersey to New Jersey. Uh, my question today is about shipping containers. Are they viable? Um, are they a viable option to store things for a year or two? Uh, backstory is I am making the walking, the, the walk to freedom from Jersey to lovely central PA. And there's not a home on there yet, so I just need an area where I could store things. I thought of buying a shipping container, storing it there. Um, and then I could always use it as a shop or something. But my question is, is it a viable option to store like my tools, maybe a sofa or things like that in a ship container? Central PA with the fluctuations of heat and cold. Uh, with that closing problems. Thanks for all you do. Hope to hear from you. Bye-bye. Well, it's actually one of the best uses for shipping containers on a remote property is to see it as exactly what you said. It's a storage facility. It keeps things dry. It keeps things protected. I mean, I wouldn't go storing chocolate bars or anything in there with the heat melting and all, but in general, you're, you're going to be just fine. I would try to locate it somewhere with shade. Uh, to mitigate exactly how hot things get in there. Anything that's really sensitive to heat or cold, obviously it's not climate controlled. So anything that could expand and fracture in the cold would be a concern. And anything that, that serious heat could damage would be a concern. Otherwise, you're looking at things that are damaged by those real extremes and everything else would be safe and watertight. And that's what they're made for. They're made to stock full of crap and then travel across the ocean and get where they're going undamaged. And Stay dry. So they work great for that. Here's the problem. There's only one, but that's a real problem. Theft. Uh, it's, it's, it's absolutely the case. If you have a shipping container locked up and you want to get inside that shipping container, the only way to get through the walls of that container is with something like an oxycetylene torch. But in the end, it all comes down to what? A lock. A lock that you can get off with a pair of bolt cutters. And there's locks that are a little bit harder to get bolt cutters on and all. And if, if I were you, that's the kind I would get. But um, in the end, a lock is still just a lock. They can be picked. They can be removed. They can be cut off. Um, they're just a lock. 
So the problem is if you're putting stuff in there that you're going to rely on that's highly valuable, you run a real risk of theft. So that's the, that's the only real downside. And the concept of burying them, I, I found a great video recently of a family that built uh, a home out of two put together, and they did put it underground, and it is very inconspicuous, hard to see, and they did it right. They basically reinforced the, the top, and they poured co a concrete slab across the whole top, distributing the weight to the corners, which is where those containers can hold weight, and that worked. But it was, you know, it was under 30 grand, I think, but it was still far too expensive for what you're talking about doing here. Um, so I don't think burying them is really a good solution. If you had earth-moving equipment, though, basically building up around and behind like a three-sided berm structure with nothing on the top and a slope so it just looks like a big hill and throwing grass seed on it might make it pretty damn inconspicuous. And if you had a wooded area where you could tuck it back in or something like that, might make it pretty inconspicuous, too. Um But that's your big concern is theft. So you got to think about your security. But as far as the functionality, keeping stuff dry, keeping stuff protected, and keeping it relatively secure, right? If, if, if some kids are out there that are just kind of vandalistic types that would steal shit if it was easily available, you know, you, you, you got to bring along a tool or you got to be pretty good at picking locks to get into one of them. They are very secure. In fact, one of the concerns when you build houses out of them is somebody could lock you inside. That's something you have to plan for with the way you design a home out of them. But that, there you go. That's my answer on that one. Security is the concern. So address that, and otherwise it'll work out just fine. And they are wonderful, you know, to do, you know, staging stuff into a place. And then when you move in and actually build, turning them into like a workshop or a storage facility. Uh, they're great for that. Uh, people are doing climate-controlled microgreens inside them. People are growing mushrooms inside them. I mean, once you add power and some climate control and some insulation, you, there's no end to what that could be for you. All right, let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Cody from Oklahoma City. Um, I was just commenting on the young man that had is about to graduate with his master's degree and is kind of faced with a couple of different job opportunities, whether or not he wants to go into his business or go work for corporate America. I just wanted to add a little bit of uh, anecdotal evidence just from my experience that I also graduated college without any debt. And while I was in college, I I was working in an industry that I wanted to work with, work with in, for my, the rest of my career. Now, I was faced with an opportunity to work for corporate America, and I know a lot of survivalists and preppers think that's an evil thing to do, but it allowed me to say open the financial freedom to buy a house. So while corporate America may not be my end goal, it does give you some freedoms. And if you come into it with the mindset that you're going to add to your repertoire for opening your own business later, I think it can give you a leg up to do that. So I absolutely agree with, uh, Jack's preliminary answer is it might be a good idea to just kind of network out, get, add some skills to your skill set, and, and really dig into that industry, especially if that's what you want to do later on. So uh, I just hope this helps, maybe gives you a different perspective, and I appreciate the show, Jack. Thanks. 
It's really valid and good advice, and I'm going to only add one brief thing to it that I didn't think to talk about in, in the, the first time I responded to this one. You know, I focused mainly on gaining real-world experience, strategic accounting knowledge, and things like that, and saying even if it's not accounting, a lot of you coming out with real real-world professions with valid degrees would do well even if you want to go into full-time business at some point to take a job with a, a firm or a larger company where you can learn a lot of these things and develop expertise and develop a network and, all, and some experience and things like that. But, you know, the guy that just called in here says, well, you know, it enabled me to buy a house. Uh, and you, most of you are thinking, well, financially, I'm going to get a big pile of cash and I can get a good down payment and buy a house. So uh, I'll tell you the other thing. You go into business for yourself, and you're looking at two years minimum as a self-employed person with two years of tax returns, and they better be good, and they better be going in the right direction. In other words, the second one better be higher than the first one before you're going to get approved for a mortgage. Seriously. It, it's And it's a pain in the ass. It is an absolute pain in the ass. The last uh, two houses I bought, I bought as a person that was self-employed with good income. I mean, I'm saying if I had a job paying me 25% less, both of my mortgages, as small as they were, would have been rubber stamped, just rubber stamped. Um, when I got my mortgage for my house in uh, Mansfield, and uh, even though I was self-employed because I was running a company and I was paying myself payroll on the payroll, right? So I was paying myself through the company versus as direct income, like pastor income with an LLC uh, works, um, it was easy. Uh, they called to verify employment. person that worked for me answered the phone and told them, yeah, he works here, he owns the damn company. All they cared about, though, is I was being paid on a W-2. I was being paid as, as, a, as an employee. When I got this house, for instance, though, I had three years of tax returns, great income, and no worries about servicing the debt on this house. I mean, I would have qualified to buy a house for three times the price if it was just a monetary thing. And I got approved, but it was letter after letter after letter after letter, including they made me get a letter from my accountant uh, stating that I was self-employed. They made me get a letter from my accountant stating I was self They had two years of tax returns, full tax returns, with the self-employment income on it, and they made me get a letter from my accountant that says I was, you know, self-employed. So another angle here is you could go work for a firm like this for a year or two, gain all that experience, get your house, and then once you have your house, then you can do whatever you want as far as starting a business. Now you want to make sure that you have a financially viable plan for that, but you're not going to have to beg them for the mortgage. That's kind of an important one to think about. So thanks for bringing that up. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Ben in Denver. Hey, I uh, just wanted to get your thoughts on having a landline uh, for a second home phone um, and what your thoughts are as far as uh, how important that might be. Just kind of thinking about the, you know, two is one, one is nine, but uh, kind of, you know, looking at pricing and stuff, it's like an extra 30 to 50 bucks a month just to have that landline. And I really don't see myself using it that often, but just thinking about redundancy and all, just curious what your thoughts might be and uh, if you think that, you know, there's so many other means of communication, smartphones and all the other stuff we have these days is that really a necessity. Uh, thanks, man. Talk to you later. Um, this is one of those catch-22s. In principle, does it make sense to spend a few bucks a month 
have a landline, have a, you know, that phone line that's, you know, pretty much guaranteed unless it has what's called backhoe fade. For those who have never been in the construction industry, backhoe fade means exactly what it sounds like. A backhoe has made your signal fade out by, you know, digging up a cable. And that could be a, you know, a storm. That can be, uh, somebody hit a pole, uh, with a truck or something, but they, they call it backhoe fade in the industry. Uh, a lot of times it's directional boring fade in this day and age where people are doing longer runs with directional boring equipment. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty resilient. And the odds that the cell phones and the landlines are down at the same time are probably lower than either one of them being down alone. So it is two is one and one is none. And it's real two is one and one is none. It's not just like I have two cell phones. They're, you know, they both use cell towers. It's I have two different pathways. I have, I have pathway redundancy is something you learn in telecommunications, uh, pretty early on that it's a very important concept. Uh, when I used to be in fiber optics, not only did we run multiple runs, but if it was a key critical component to uh, a network, we would run two separate pathways. So one would take a pathway A and one would take a pathway B, and they'd be separated. So if something damaged one of them and you're doing like a redundant ring network, uh, FDDI is what they call it in fiber, so one side fails, the other side picks up, that second side would never be in a position to be damaged at the same time unless it was damaged at the source. Right, So it's the same type of thinking, and it makes sense. But what do I always, always say? I always try to give you advice based on what I've done, and I'm not willing to pay $30, $40 bucks for a landline. Um, I have a cell phone. My wife has a cell phone. Yeah, they're on the same networks. But we also have um, cable, and our cable is a, a completely separate technology than our cell phones. That gives us access to Skype. And then we have a VOIP line um, with cable because it's bundled. And it actually would have cost me, I don't even use it. There's a box in there, and I have an old phone I can plug into it if I ever want to use it. Um, but it would have cost me $20 more a month to get Internet and cable without the VOIP line. So we said, fine. So I've got the VOIP line. I've got the cell phones. I've got Skype uh, as long as I have Internet. Um, so When I look at that, I go, I don't, I really don't see the need. I look at that money and say, is there things that it could do better for me? And personally, I feel like there are. But if you said, I've decided that I think this is a good idea for me and my family under my plan, so we're going to spend the money to do this, I would never tell you you're wrong for doing it. So I know that's not a concrete answer, yes or no, but it's, I personally wouldn't do it, but I understand why somebody else would, and it does make sense to a degree. But if you have cable for Internet service, you have a copper line coming to the house that provides communications. And if you experience something that takes out a phone line or a cable line, it probably takes out both. Generally, you don't have pathway redundancy. You look up at those poles, and you look up, and you see electric on the top, and then you see telecommunications, and then you see cable TV. Boom, boom, boom. So if something brings down one of those poles or a tornado takes out and pops a pole or something like that, you're generally losing both of them anyway. So that's another way to look at it there, I guess. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. My name's Dean. I'm calling from Australia. Jack, I just want a question about um, a 357 Magnum round when fired from a rifle. I'm looking at buying the IMI 357 Magnum Timberwolf, which is a pump-action uh, rifle. Um, the reason being, you can't have semi-automatics here and you can't have pump-action shotguns. So this is the next best thing for me as a fun shooter. It's kind of like a, a pump-action. 
My questions relate to um, what sort of distance would a 357 be effective and accurate? What size game could you shoot with, with that size bullet? Um, what types of loads or bullets would be best in it for different things like personal defense and stuff like that? Uh, do you think it would be good as a, um, as a home defense gun? Um, like I said, can't have a pump action. And can you like put 38 specials, sort of load it down, shoot smaller game, maybe let the kids shoot it like that? Um, yeah, I just want to buy it because um, it looks great and it's just for fun. I've got a few other things, but it's um, a toy I'd be interested in. I'm just wondering what you think about that cartridge out of a rifle. Uh, thanks again. Okay, so um, I'm going to tell you right now, I love 357 Magnum rifles. I think they're one of the most underrated uh, tools and, and, and weapons out there. And I'll, I'll give some answers to this. I'll also let you know that the uh, caller did follow up with me and say I'm not really interested in long-range long, long range shooting at all. I'm tr trying to shoot 300 yards. I understand the limitations of that type of thing. And, uh, you know, he's in a unique situation being in Australia uh, with pump being something he can get in a rifle but not a shotgun. Uh, and, of course, semi-autos are just out, and I'm not sure where Australia comes down on lever actions. But if they allow a pump-action rifle, you'd think they'd add a lever action. So I'm going to kind of cash this right up front and say everything I say about this particular rifle or pump 357s applies to lever action 357s or single-shot 357s. So let's start out with what I would consider the best all-around load for the 357 uh, Magnum rifles in, in, in general. 158 grain flat point, a uh, good solid bullet, something like a Hornady XTP, uh, but again, the flat, uh, the flat point, not the hollow point. You're pushing higher velocities, and the hollow point ammunition uh, made for 357 uh, cartridges uh, opens up really, really fast, especially at closer ranges, and may not get the penetration you're looking for. Um, you can you can play up and down. You know, you're wanting 125 grain, I think, is your control your bottom end there, uh, and your upper end being like 180. But I think you'll find the overall performance of a good flat point, uh, 158 grain. And then when you download to 38 Special, uh, there could be a case for going up 180 grain, but 158 grain um, wad cutters, uh, semi-wad cutter type, uh, hard cast lead, good stuff as well. Okay, so let's start talking about some performance here. The 357 Magnum is a, a, a good handgun for hunting. A lot of people have shot deer size game and even larger up to elk. I don't know that I'd recommend it for elk, but it's been done. Until the advent of the 44 Magnum, the 357 Magnum was the most powerful handgun in the world. And it was used by big game hunters all around the world to take big game. Uh, in Australia, I mean, big game is what? A kangaroo? Right, so just about anything down there that you would have to shoot. I guess there's some water buffalo here and there. I I don't know that I'd go hitting them with a round like that. Uh, you might have some uh, feral water buffalo down there that are huntable, but Australian big game, no problem. Americas, uh, you know, Americans, you're, you're talking about deer, no problem. And I've done it, so I can tell you it works just fine. What happens when you put it in a rifle, though? Well. It, it becomes more powerful than a cartridge very few people are really familiar with, but the 357 Maximum. Back in the 80s, Dan Wesson made the 357 Max, and what they did is they made the Magnum a little bit longer, mainly so that you couldn't accidentally put it in something that it wasn't supposed to go in at higher pressures. And then they put more powder in it. 
and it was a great cartridge, and it was considered the most powerful handgun in the world because of the gains in energy that it had when it was released. And again, I think it was about 82 that this came out. But it quickly fell out of favor because all of that powder in a revolver burned out uh, the forcing cone on the barrel very, very quickly, and it made it impractical. And then Thompson Center brought it back in the uh, in the various single-shot, uh, what is it, the Contender, and I can't think of the other one. Um, and then a lot of people that like handy rifles like I did before they stopped making them, you get a three fifty seven Magnum barrel and you get a reamer and you ream it out and you got a three fifty seven Maximum. But in that handgun, it was a very powerful cartridge, and no one thought twice about using it on something like a deer. Well, when you take a three fifty seven Magnum and you put it into an 18-inch barreled rifle, you get about 100 feet per second more velocity than the maximum did. And what does it look like? Well, it's about 1,700 feet per second uh, with a, and I, when I get this technical, I always do you know, put things down, but ballistic coefficient on 158 grain flat point is about .199. That's its ability to fly. Longer and thinner, higher ballistic coefficient. It's relatively low. Uh, but at the muzzle, that'll give you 1,700 foot-pounds of uh, feet per second and about 1,000 foot-pounds of energy. We move out to 100 yards. We're still cooking along at 1,387 feet per second and 675 foot-pounds of energy. Well, it just so happens that you're right about that point, just a little a hair under what a three fifty seven Magnum is out of a revolver at the muzzle. So if you think you could shoot a deer with a three fifty seven Magnum from 10 feet away effectively, as long as you can hit it with a rifle, you got the same ballistic results at 100 yards. It's actually relatively flat shooting in what you would call moderate ranges. Now, moderate ranges, we're not talking 250 yards. But this is from Hornady's ballistic calculator right here. I dialed in that exact load with a zero at 50 yards. If I zero that at 50 yards, it will be .3 inches low at 25 it will be 0.6 inches low at 75, and it will be 2.2 inches low at 100 yards. That means if we zero at 50 yards, we are dead on. We are within margin of shooter error on deer-sized game or kangaroo-sized game out to 100 yards, and we are definitely lethal out to 100 yards. In fact, we're only down 5 inches at 125 yards, and we're down 9 inches at 150 yards. So if we know our range and we know our hold, we can shoot 150 yards, no problem with this round, and I think that's pushing it. But we're still packing about 500 pounds of energy. Now, I know the books say you're supposed to have 1,000 foot-pounds of energy to kill a deer, maybe a kangaroo too, but the reality is 500 pounds of energy uh, in a 35 caliber projectile that has good penetration with good bullet placement will do it every time. I've shot feral hogs up over 200 pounds with a little uh, NEF handy rifle and 357 Magnum. Uh, I've shot deer with it. I've shot exotic game like uh, exotic rams and... It's it's amazing how lethal and how quick kill I've gotten out of it every time I've used it with long shots. Uh, and that's all I've ever done with it is long shots. I think I shot one deer that I took behind the ear, and that one went down like dynamite went off in his skull. But it absolutely does work fabulously. Downloading it to 38 Special is a great idea. And going into something like, I really recommend everybody... Get a copy of Modern Reloading by Richard Lee, and I have both the the, the modern one and there's an older model um, that is a red copy. If you can find that used, get that one. It's got some older loads in it, and go to the lightest 38 special loads you can get, 
and, and do that in either 158 or 180 grain lead. And what you have is an amazing, amazing penetrating round that expands very little, and it sounds like a pellet gun going off. I do the same thing with 44 Magnum with the lightest 44 special load I can find. Uh, and that, that particular load will penetrate 7.5 inches of pressure tree wood at 25 yards. That's still quite lethal on deer size game. I don't know what I tried with the 357, but it gives you an idea of what can be done. By going to hard cast lead, 38 special loads, you can shoot smaller game, especially with headshots, without blowing it the hell up. As far as the kids shooting with 38 specials, there's no reason the kids can't shoot it with the heaviest 357 Magnum loads because, you know what? There's almost no recoil in a rifle from a 357. As far as the IMI, it's now called IWI as the company, Israeli Weapons or something like that. I'll put a link to their website in the show notes. They sell under in America, by the way. The, uh, the, the gun you're asking about, I was like, damn it, now I'm going to have to buy one because I thought it was cool. Um, they're, they're not being made anymore. So if you can find one and you want one, I would get it. I went on GunBroker. There's one available. It's got two bids on it. It's currently at $775. Uh, Uberte also made a pump action 357 Magnum rifle, a little bit larger frame, not that short, small short barrel, uh, kind of an old style looking gun, kind of cool. Um, also not made anymore. So if you want to buy something currently being made in 357 Magnum, you're looking at Thompson Sender, uh, Contender or Encore. Uh, you're looking at finding a used handy rifle if you can in that caliber. You're looking at Winchester, Marlin, Henry, etc., all of the uh, lever actions. And you know what it makes me think? There should be a, a good, affordable pump action 357 Magnum for bush hunting deer size game. It's a fantastic round, and it makes me wish that Deerfield, I'm sorry, Ruger would bring back the Deerfield, the Deerfield carbine in both 44 Magnum like they originally made it. And in 357 Magnum, it would be a fantastic, fantastic round. Those of you that are skeptical of what the 357 Magnum can do, get your hands on one and play with it. I'm telling you, we used to sit shooting uh, sporting clays at 100 yards on a berm offhand with ours all the time, and it was amazing how how you know dead on that gun was out to about 100 yards. And everything I ever shot with, all I can say is, you put a hole through an animal's lungs, through both lungs, and in the words of Jack O'Connor. It'll run about as far as it can hold its breath and not much further. And with that, we've rounded out another great show. I love the questions this week. Lots of diversity. Please, guys, I need more questions. I'm knocking them out pretty good now. I had a couple questions I couldn't use this week due to quality of the calls. Uh, so try to make sure you get a good signal when you make a call from your cell phones. Make sure you have a couple bars or more. Go to a quiet area and don't turn your head away from the phone. Speak into the phone. Don't do this to me like that, blah, 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 like that. Don't do that. Stay into the phone, and uh, remember, no one's there to tell you if you can't be heard, so speak up nice and loud. That's another good thing to do. Um, and don't call from the back of a motorcycle running a weed eater or a chainsaw. 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK is how you make a call for a show like this. There'll be another one next Thursday. Keep the calls coming. Bring me more gun questions, man. I love the gun questions. I, I mean, absolutely love gun questions. Um before we get into uh, today's song, which is going to be about guns, uh, as you might imagine, given the announcement I made today, I want to tell you again that you can uh, do business with other members of our community at tspbiz.com. Our featured member of the business directory today is called Great Escape Farms. They offer root cuttings of unique edible plants from their nursery. They also blog daily about permaculture and other homesteading topics over at greatescapefarms.com. And there will be a link in today's show notes where you can learn more about them. 
unique root cuttings of edible plants. I'm going. I didn't notice them until today when I got uh, the blurb for today from uh, Blake, who runs the business directory for us. Um, I'm going to go check them out today. I better do it before I put the show out live and they sell out of the coolest stuff they have, like usually happens to me. Anyway, uh, tspbiz.com, great way to find folks in the community to do business with or to be found. Remember, you can list your business for as little as five bucks. You want to help support the show? Consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members to learn more. And uh, that's all I'll say about that today. But another way you can help support my show, go to tspaz.com, and you'll end up at Amazon. Then do your shopping at Amazon like you always do. And you will help support the show because you'll be going through our Amazon affiliate link. It's as easy as it gets. And somebody emailed me and pointed out something I didn't didn't notice. that It, it actually spells T-SPAS. Right, so you go to go to T-Spaz and you can help support the Survival Podcast. T-Spaz.com, uh, T-S-P-A-Z.com, which stands for the Survival Podcast Amazon. And again, it's one letter less than Amazon.com. So how much easier could it be to help support the work we do? Um, next up, kind of our ending song of the day, as you might imagine, is Aaron Lewis's Granddaddy's Gun, which is what kind of led myself and, and Kevin. To, uh, to, to together one night, we listened to that song up in Elijah Spring Farm, West Virginia, and we just kind of had a brainstorm about how cool it would be if we got people together and did that. And we were imbibing in some adult beverages at the time, and that's part of why we came up with the whole you know master at arms or sergeant at arms type of idea to keep everything safe. And I, I think that this really could be a good thing for America. I think it could definitely be a good thing for the Second Amendment. And I think what it can really do is build community. You know, Dorothy and I were talking about this idea, and I was saying, you know, there's a lot of things that I've done in these markets that have been really successful, like permaculture and what have you. But those markets are tiny compared to gun owners. Um, we, when we came out with a silver coin years ago, we decided we would, you know, mention gun owners in America in number, and the number we came up with was 65 million Americans own guns. 65 million. And just think about it. If you go to gun shows, how, how many people you see at an individual gun show? And, and all of those people are concerned, in my opinion anyway, about the right to keep and bear arms. When you, when you keep and bear arms, you're concerned about the right not being taken from you to continue to do so. This could be one of the biggest things we've ever done as a community in building the Granddaddy's Gun Club. And it's so universal. People that don't care about preparedness, as long as they're gun owners, I think they'd be interested in this. And what a great way to introduce your friends who, like, they're kind of interested in guns, but they're not sure. Imagine just a great camping trip, a great time out, and understanding the heritage that is firearms in America. The, the, the value. See, to me, part of what makes guns amazing is they're the best-built tools of the modern day. There's nothing else you can buy. You can use, you know, regularly for 20, 30, 40 years. Give it to someone and it works as good as it did the day you got it if you just take care of it right. There's not much that does that. Because guns have to be safe to use, they're built that way. They are an amazing thing. And I'm going to tell you, one of the guns that's going to be my gun set aside in the Granddaddy's Gun Club is nothing special, really, other than it's special to me. I have a Model 25 Marlin. They don't make that gun anymore. Um, Marlin makes, I think it's called a 925. It's the modern version of it. It's still pretty much the same gun. It's a gun that sells for under 200 bucks new today. One, my dad gave it to me when I was 14 years old for Christmas. 
so that I could use it running my trap lines. Uh, I think that gun sold brand new for sixty bucks at a store called Boscov's. Sixty dollar gun, and I've had that gun since I'm fourteen years old. It's been everywhere that I've ever gone. I've never gone a place where I've gone where I haven't taken it with me. Um, as far as like moving and things like that, it's never been kept somewhere else. I never trusted it to be kept somewhere else. If uh, if like the house is on fire and I can only grab a few things, it would be one of the things that I would grab, even though I have things that are worth a hell of a lot more. Because from the time I was 14 years old until I left for the military, it was the gun that I picked up every time I left the house to go up the mountain or something like that. It's the gun that I became a rifleman with. It's the reason I was able to qualify expert the first time I ever shot in the military with an M16 was because I was already there because of years and, and tens of thousands of rounds that went through that little gun. Uh, in in uh, one point in my life, I stripped all of that ugly paint that Marlin puts on them off, and I refinished it with this honey walnut, and this is a gore, and I hand finished it with uh, true oil. It's the prettiest Marlin Model 25 you'll ever look at. Um, I've carried it. For so many miles, I can't begin to tell you. I shot groundhogs with it. I shot squirrels with it. I shot crows with it. I have more blackbirds than I probably should ever admit to. It's it's that old gun for me. That that is my walk as a rifleman. There's there's just no way that I would ever let that gun out of my hands until someday I'll I'll put it in the hands of my son or my grandson or my granddaughter or a nephew or a niece. I don't know exactly who it's set aside yet for, but. I'll tell you what, in the words of the song, it, it damn sure ain't for sale. There, there's just no way that I could ever sell it. Uh, there, there's no price I could put on it. It's priceless. And tell me how many things you feel like about that in your life. And I bet you most of you have one of those old guns. And here's the good news. If you don't, you have a lifetime to create those memories with a, with a gun, with a tool that you can set aside for a future generation. With that in mind... Take a walk today with the internet over to granddaddysgun.com. Remember, you can spell it either way. You'll end up in the same place. Consider becoming a member. And if you know a little bit about WordPress and graphic design and stuff like that and you'd like to help out, send me an email after you do, and uh, I'll connect with you and you can get into the private group. Start creating groups. Start creating forums. Do whatever you want. Play with the site. Just remember, it doesn't look that good yet. Uh, but most of you, I think, will be able to figure out how to use it, and we'll make it user-friendly over time. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition on the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. It sits above the mantle On a couple rusty nails Ain't worth a lot of money And a damn sure ain't for sale Good Lord only knows all the stories it could tell My granddaddy's gun He bought it new out of the Sears Roebuck catalog And it shot a many shells over the back of an old bird dog It backed the burglar down when Grandma took the safety off Granddaddy's gun Just an old double barrel twelve Stock is cracked and kicks like hell Wouldn't mean what it means to me to no one I can still hear his voice when I put it to my shoulder It comes like a woman, son, it's all how you hold her Taught me a whole lot more than how to hunt 